Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton will start clearing snowy sidewalks starting in 2022. Ottawa and Ontario still can't agree on a daycare deal. We'll tell you about a new scam that's making the rounds in the city. Plans have been announced for Grey Cup Week in Hamilton. A local winery has been named Winery of the Year. And some cool predictions like flying cars for the next 20 years. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton is planning to start clearing sidewalks during those snowy months, but not this winter. This will start in the winter of 2022. The city is going to clear an additional 470 kilometers of sidewalk along transit routes and near schools whenever there's five centimeters or more of snow on the ground. Now, Ward 3 Councilor Narendra Nan says that clearing sidewalks along transit routes reflects, quote, equity in action. Laura Katari is the chair of the Social Policy Working Group with the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Rick. I'm actually senior policy analyst now with them, so I've done my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the promo. Thank you. This is uh, great news and a long time coming. It, it, it's been since 2003, um, the first staff report that came out around this. So yes, we've been asking for this for a very long time. Um, we're hoping that not just persons with disabilities, but seniors, um, moms with carriages, people that like to shop local and have their little buggies that they bring to and from the grocery store will be able to traverse the sidewalks and intersections during the winter. Now, you've been greatly impacted by this because you use a wheelchair, and obviously when there's a lot of snow on the ground, um, there's not much you can do to, to get around and do the things that you need to do. Oh, that is so true. And right now, the system that we have is more of a reporting system. So if I was heading to work and I encountered neighbors that didn't clear their snow or an intersection, I would literally have to report it to the city and until they had a cleanup crew go out or contact an owner. And of course, effectively, that means I'm not going to work or I'm not going to grocery shopping or whatever else I had to do, the reason why I was outdoors. And so how long would that take? You you call into the city and they come out within an hour? Does it take a day? Um, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I haven't gone back to check. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, one hour would be, uh, I think, very generous. Right. I, I think that day for sure. Um, and I'm pretty sure they give notices for first-time infractions, etc. But that doesn't help me at all. No, and, and I mean, uh, you must dread the winter because, uh, I, um, you know, if, if you can't go to work and you can't get groceries or whatever the case is, there's somewhat of a trapped feeling, I would think. Oh, definitely trapped. And I think during the pandemic the past year, everyone has gotten a good taste of not being able to do what they want to do, um, not being able to see who they want to see, um, to get out and connect with people. My winter's are very much like that. It's heading into a season that I cannot reliably um, go out and see people, and it's isolating, um, and it makes me very dependent on others. And, of course, you know, we want seniors aging in place. We want persons 
with disabilities to, you know, live independently, but we're not providing a service that would allow for that. Laura Katari is a senior policy analyst with the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Councillor Narendra Nan called it uh, equity in action. I'm sure you would agree with that. Oh, absolutely. And in terms of that equitable, I, I guess, treatment, you know, everyone is now on the same uh, kind of playing field. You know, you don't have to worry that if there's, you know, five centimeters on the ground, you know, that snow is going to be cleared. You can, you know, go on with your day without worrying. And that's probably the most important part. Without worrying. And um, quite honestly, I mean, I'm lucky if I absolutely had to, I could go a couple of blocks with um, canes and uh, grips on my boots and things like that. But the problem is, you know, it's not just me in my neighborhood. I live um, Corktown, the edge of St. Joe's Hospital. This is a medical district. And so we have people from across Hamilton coming to this area. And I have seen time and time again during the winter, people trying to drop off um, older family members Uh, especially some of the medical buildings, and watching them trying to traverse a two-foot pile of snow, trying to get out of the cars, finding a place where they could even open the car door. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost impossible. And and so, yeah, it's all about equity. It's making sure everyone has access and, quite frankly, safer. Um, Nelson, B.C. uh, was just taken to the Supreme Court of Canada, and lost on an appeal that, yes, you can decide policy of what you're going to do in the city, but operationally, if something is unsafe, they're liable. And I think it's sort of a chilling effect across Canada. So there's the equity issue, and there's also just plain safety issue. Absolutely. Laura, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for the time, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Talk to you soon. You got it. That is Laura Katari, Senior Policy Analyst with the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, as we wind up our chat about snow clearing from sidewalks. And it will finally happen in the winter of 2022 when there is five centimeters or more of snow on the ground, an additional 470 kilometers of sidewalk. Uh, especially those along transit routes near schools are going to be cleared, and it's going to make a uh, not only a more equitable space but a safer space for all. And that's a good thing. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. So we are still waiting for a daycare deal here in Ontario as the federal government and the province continues to sit at the negotiating table, at least the virtual table. We heard uh, from Education Minister Stephen Lecce who said that uh, this national child care plan that's being offered by the Trudeau government uh, could set Ontario up for short-term success but long-term failure, which is very interesting. Only Ontario and New Brunswick don't have daycare deals with the Trudeau Liberals. Here to chat about this is Andrea Hannon. She's the executive director of the Association of Daycare Operators of Ontario. Good morning, Andrea. Hi, good morning. So Ontario continues to wait. Is this a case of all good things come to those who wait or are we expecting uh, some bad news here? Are we, are we still getting some bad news? No, you know, I think probably uh, I think probably there are significant issues that have to be worked out between the two parties, and it just takes time. 
I understand that the cost of daycare, the median daycare cost in Toronto is $22,000 a year. That seems crazy. <laughs> well, don't forget, it's a very labor-intensive business. Yeah. And so, you know, and you can't cut back on staff. Uh, the n- number of staff per children is regulated. So, you know, it's not like, oh, we can just serve more children with fewer staff and lower the fees. It's not like that. You know, A, it's a matter of regulation, but B, most uh, center owner operators would not want to do that anyway, just for the standpoint of safety. So is this a good deal? You know, I think you have to look at not just what's happening today in terms of, of cost of child care for families. It, you also have to, and, and for taxpayers for that matter, you also have to look at it in the long term, in that Ontario's population is going to continue to grow. Right. So, you know, I'm I'm sure that at the negotiating table, people have to think about, okay, what's going to work for now, but what is also going to work for the future? And when we look at the agreements that have been signed across the country and, you know, just to back up one minute, I'm not sure that all of your uh, listeners would know that every province has a slightly different system for licensed child care. So in some provinces, there are no licensed child care centers run as small businesses. In some provinces, it's only um, not-for-profit organizations and public sector, like government-run organizations that do child care. And in those cases, they don't have a source of new child care spaces unless they increase taxpayer funding. Right. So in that scenario, of, of course, you're going to sign a deal very quickly because the only way that you can create new licensed child care spaces. Our guest Thanks. is Andrea Hannon. Sorry to interrupt. Executive Director yep. of the Association of Daycare Operators of Ontario. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, you explained the system in other provinces. So, so what do we have here and is it working in Ontario? Uh, well, here in Ontario, we have uh, we have a mixed system. And so, you know, child child care um, for children who are school age, right, like pre-kindergarten kindergarten and junior kindergarten, a lot of that takes place in the public school system through the full-day kindergarten program. You know, and albeit some parents have to pay additional fees for wraparound care, the little bit of care at the beginning and the end of the day. But for all intents and purposes, that's a universal system in that anybody can access the the system for the portion of the school day that's covered. So, you know, that's part of our system. It's a unique feature that only exists in Ontario. Um, And, you know, we also have uh, 25% of our spaces are provided by independent licensed centres. So these are centres that a lot of them are owned and run as small businesses. They're owned and operated by women. Uh, We have another portion of the independent licensed sector that are independent centers. They're run as not-for-profits, but for all intents and purposes, they're run like small businesses in that these would be standalone centers, say, operated by a church or a synagogue or a, a parent cooperative, things like that. And then we also have the more institutional sector, which are the really, really large Um, not-for-profit organizations like YMCAs and Boys and Girls Clubs. So we have a mixed system here in Ontario. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because what it means is you do have a source 
of new licensed childcare spaces in that the independent licensed sector, centers that are owned and operated as small businesses, can continue to grow. They don't necessarily need taxpayer dollars to expand. New centers can open as small businesses. And that's really important if your population is going to continue to grow because otherwise you have no way of ensuring that your system keeps pace with population growth. So I would say those are strengths in Ontario. I would say that it also paints a good picture on how intricate the system is and why these negotiations are taking maybe a little bit longer here in Ontario than they had been with other provinces. We have to leave it there. We're out of time. Andrea, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. You are very welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Andrea Hannon, Executive Director, Association of Daycare Operators of Ontario, and uh, just a little glimpse of how... How much different it is here in Ontario in terms of getting a deal, because there's so many different options available to parents out there uh, compared to places like uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, all provinces that have already uh, solidified their deals with the federal government. In fact, just Ontario and New Brunswick, as you heard, uh, are the only two provinces without a daycare, a new daycare deal with the federal government. $10 a day daycare sounds like an absolute steal if the average, if the median price for daycare in Toronto is north of $22,000? That is mind-boggling. That's like leasing a vehicle. And our children are way more important than leasing a vehicle, but that's a hefty price tag. Imagine having two or three kids in the daycare system in TO or other places in Ontario. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, a lot of you right now, are paying those bills thinking, wow, there's got to be a better option. There's got to be a cheaper place. Well, we shall see. We, we don't quite have the deal done yet, and we wait with bated breath. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton police issuing a warning about a new emergency or grandparent scam. What's going on? Well, let's ask Detective Ben Adams in the Crimes Against Seniors Unit with Hamilton Police. Detective Adams, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, good morning, Rick. Thanks for uh, inviting me to your show. What do we know about this scam? Uh, so the scam's not necessarily new, but what we've seen in the last little while is an uptake in the number of incidents. So um, say if you go over the last uh, year, seven months, or so, we've had one incident of the grandparent scam that's been reported to the police. Um, <clears throat> and then within the last month and a half, uh, it's gone up to uh, seven. And if you take the statistics coming out from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, you know, only 5 to 10% of victims actually report these incidents to the police. We're likely looking at more than 70 to 140 people just in the city of Hamilton alone um, that have probably been a victim of it. And uh, the way the scam works is generally uh, a person calls your home and they try to basically put pressure uh, on the individual who answers the phone, put them in a state of emergency, uh, panic, if you will, to start sending money uh, in relation to a grandchild or a child um, that's in jail and that they basically, need, you need to help them get out of jail quickly. So if someone receives a call like this, should they call police? What should they do? Absolutely. Um, the one thing I always say to people is if you don't report incidents to the police for anything, we, we don't know that it's happening. In a lot of these cases, um, particularly the grandparent scams, obviously because it's called a grandparent scam, generally means that the target population is at least 55 or older. Uh, and in some of the cases, these people are um, uh, widows um, or people who live alone. 
And they may not necessarily have someone that they can call just to say, hey, I just want to do a reality check. Do I think I'm being the victim of a scam here or is this real? And certainly call the police. We can help you uh, work through those issues and perhaps prevent the loss of money as opposed to chasing it later to try and get it back for you. You mentioned that uh, police have noticed a rise in uh, the number of incidents. Have there been any victims that have come forward to say, yeah, I've, I've, I've lost some money here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know what, uh, we went from one in the last year to seven. So, I mean, there are a lot more people and some of them have very, uh, very tragic tales. You know, these are people on uh, very tight budgets. They've lost the money. And I think in a lot of cases, um, because for all of us, as, you know, as we age, we start to lose some of our independence. Um, you know, it, it can have a profound effect to, uh, you know, know that you've been taken advantage of, right? And while it happens to people of all ages, um, I find that it's uh, the seniors in general take it a little bit harder, perhaps, uh, you know, emotionally. Dr. or Detective Ben Adams is our guest at Crimes Against Seniors Unit with the Hamilton Police Service. We're chatting about the emergency or grandparent scam. Now, we certainly saw a spike in scams at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Is that still the case? Are we seeing a lot of scams? Oh, there's, there's scams that uh, are uh, constantly on the go because it's, uh, it's low risk, high reward. Uh, in a lot of cases, um, the perpetrators are perhaps in remote locations or even out of the country, uh, and essentially, um, without pretty much an you know an international effort to uh, tackle these kind of crimes, you know they have the ability to make a lot of money in a very short uh, uh, time frame, and so I think a lot of criminals are moving towards out. So, yeah, there's definitely an uptake in it. It's pretty sad, but uh, obviously Hamilton Police on the case are, uh, as well as uh, other law enforcement units as well. Uh, Detective Adams, thanks for the time today, and good luck catching these bad guys. Okay, thanks so much, Rick. Take care. You too. That is Detective Ben Adams, uh, Hamilton Police Crimes Against Seniors Unit. Some of the tips that uh, police are offering to you include uh, never offer information to the person on the other end. Um, if you do have a family member either close by or reachable by phone, you know, contact that family member to confirm the story that's being presented to you. Don't be afraid to say no. You know, say no, hang up. What's the worst that can happen? I'll call you back, and if it is a scam, maybe you'll be that much more better prepared. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is a monumental month coming up in December for the Grey Cup and the city of Hamilton because, well, they go hand in hand. And plans have now been announced for Grey Cup week in Hamilton. Football fans from coast to coast to coast are going to be able to attend several events in advance of the 108th Grey Cup on December 12th at Tim Hortons Fields. To talk about it, here is Matt Affinek, President and Chief Operator officer with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Matt, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. There, Thanks for coming on. There is a slew of things for people to do during Grey Cup week. Is there, you know, besides the game, is there a highlight or two that you're excited about? Well, I'd, I'd say certainly, Rick, after the uh, couple years we've gone through here, I think anything that resembles CFL fans and, and Ticat fans getting together is, is a good thing. So by, by that definition, we're excited about everything. Uh, one I point to, especially talking uh to your audience of a lot of Tiger Cat fans is uh, what we have planned on game day with what we're calling Tiger Town game day with our friends at Bench Brewing. So uh, we're going to do a pregame event at the Hamilton Convention Center for uh, for all Tiger Cat fans to gather, get together before the game. So that'll go down kind of 11 to 3 on the game day Sunday, and that'll be a true celebration of the franchise, our great fans, our alumni are actively involved. We're expecting upwards of 100 alumni to attend 
that event. So if I had to isolate just one, it would be that one, Rick. So that's like an indoor tailgate party, basically. Yeah, it's an indoor pregame event. Um, and, and as I said, there'll be live music, there'll be food. Our, our friends at, at Bench Brewing down in Beamsville are, are supporting us with that event. So uh, there'll be a few cold beverages. But really, it's just a celebration of Grey Cup Sunday, as you know, having gone many times. Grey Cup Sunday is a, a truly Canadian experience. And uh, being fortunate to host it in Hamilton this year, we wanted to make sure that we did something uh, that celebrated the franchise and our great fans. It was announced uh, last Friday night that uh, Arkells would be the halftime show act for uh, Grey Cup 108 here in Hamilton. Was that a no-brainer? Well, I think like anything, uh, you know, the, the fact that, uh, that Arkells are from Hamilton, I think, is just the, the cherry on top of all of this. They're obviously one of the biggest uh, bands in Canada right now, so getting access to have them do, do it is truly an honour for the Canadian Football League and for us at the, the organizing committee here in Hamilton. But, you know, I think what we're really excited about, and, and the listeners would know, is our Kells are renowned for just putting on an amazing live show. It's about the music, but it's about the overall experience. So the energy they bring, the, the performance they bring, we know will be next level on Grey Cup Sunday. So uh, I think anyone's, uh, everyone should be excited to tune in at halftime. Yeah, and that's one of the questions that I've heard from some fans is, you know, is this going to be a, you know, quote-unquote regular halftime show because of the pandemic and some restrictions? Uh, I think regardless, fans are going to be entertained. I, I would say, uh, and I'm certainly not speaking for our cows, but uh, they would have it no other way, Rick. So I, I certainly, I've seen all the production plans. I can sure, assure all the listeners that uh, this will be a pretty magical Grey Cup halftime performance, zero doubt there. Uh, other events for Grey Cup Week include Grey Cup Arrival, Spirit of Edmonton, which is always a, a great thing to consider. There's also one called the Eastern Social Hall, and it involves the Atlantic Schooners, which isn't really a franchise, but certainly a growing fan base. One of the great CFL traditions, a Grey Cup party for a franchise that's yet to play a game. So, uh, you know, to your point, what we've, what we've done with the, uh, the kind of the traditional team rooms, and uh, they started this back in Calgary in 2019, and it was met with great, great, great support from the fans, so we thought we would continue it, which is, you know, a Grey Cup, you're a fan of the CFL, you're a fan of the Grey Cup, so no matter what team you cheer for, there's this great camaraderie of people coming together, celebrating everything that Grey Cup represents, no matter what team they cheer for. So our version of this in Hamilton will be to separate room, separate fans based on East and West. Obviously, everyone is welcome, uh, but have the, the Western team celebrated in one room in the convention center, the Eastern team celebrated in the other, and just really a destination point, live music, food, beverage for, for fans of every team to come together um, and, and revel in Grey Cup. Another cool event is the Fan Base Unveil that's going to happen on December the 10th. Tell us about this. Yeah, so the Fan Base Unveil is part of uh, the Commissioner's uh, State of League, Fan State of League, we call it, and, and it, it actually highlights something that's uh, unique to our Grey Cup here in, here in Hamilton, Rick, which is there's a collection of events um, that in the past have been kind of paid that we're offering free of charge uh, to fans. They need to RSVP for the available seats and we've seen great demand for this in the first couple days since the announcement but things like the player awards the fan state of the league which also includes the fan base reveal so these are free events um, that you can go to greatcupfestival.ca and register for Um, but that's again we we uh, brought the fan base forward during the pandemic year and that will symbolize the the fans raising the great cup and presenting the great cup so it'll be unveiled for the first time publicly at that event at Grey Cup Week. I uh, don't want to throw you a curveball out of left field, but we're just getting a, a tweet from a soccer insider with the Washington Post who says that Tim Hortons Fields uh, is likely to be the World Cup qualifying game between Canada and the States. Can you confirm? 
I uh, know we have no comment on that right now, Rick. But uh, obviously, very excited about what. Uh, what the Canadian men's national team is doing in general, and obviously their performance last night. Yeah, should be, uh, well, if, if it does happen on January 30th, that would be another great event at Tim Hortons Field for sure. Matt, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, appreciate it, Rick. Thank you for having me. That's Matt Afanek, president and COO of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And, of course, you can get your Grey Cup tickets, Ticketmaster, or Ticats.ca, and go to the game on December 12th, and hopefully we'll see the Ticats there as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A Beansville winery has been named Winery of the Year at the National Wine Awards in B.C. And, in fact, Malivoir Wines won 17 medals in the competition that featured about 260 competitors and took home three platinum medals for the first time ever. Shiraz Montiar is a winemaker at Malivore Wines in Beamsville and joins us this morning. Shiraz, uh, you got you got the name for it, and now you're an award-winning uh, winemaker. How cool is this? This is pretty cool. I mean, I've always had the name for it. I've been lucky, and it really guided me into wine, you know, making wine. Uh, but uh, yeah, this award is is really cool, and and a great you know uh, recognition of, of of a lot of hard work. We've been doing this for for many years, and and it's 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 really something special. So, talk about your award winning wine. Um, what made it so special? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, uh, well, the three platinums to start, like you just said, it, it was, it's the first time that's ever happened. Uh, usually the, the, the winery that wins Winery of the Year has, has garnered at least two, but no one's ever done three. So the three that we got uh, the platinums for, uh, the first one is a traditional method sparkling uh, rosé. Uh, it's called Bizou Rosé. Uh, really beautiful, made from Pinot Noir, grown right here on the Beamsville bench in our, in our uh, estate vineyards. And it's it's gorgeous, and 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 it's it's great to get this award now because we're getting into that kind of uh, uh, season where people want to celebrate and have sparkling wine, and this is a perfect wine for it. So that's that was one of the wines. The the other two, um, a little bit uh, similar in each other. They they both have some gamay uh, in in the wine. The first one is our uh, liqueur gamay, uh, again grown in our estate vineyard, uh, made uh, in a different kind of way. Uh, then you traditionally make wine. Normally you crush the grapes and you ferment on the skins, and, and then that's how you extract all the color and flavor, and then you press off and go to barrel. Here we left the clusters completely intact and blanketed it under CO2, and that's called carbonic maceration. And you get a really different flavor um, and a different character, but it is a traditional method of making Gamay in Beaujolais. Um, and I've sort of kind of been working on this process for a while, and, and it really has turned into a beautiful wine, and it's a great way to do it. It's hard to do a lot of it, but, uh, uh, so this is a very small batch, but uh, it's, it's really cool. And the third wine was our uh, uh, Demo Series Analog Red, which is a co-fermentation of Cabernet Franc and Gamay, uh, fermented in concrete, and a concrete tank that we actually made locally right here in Winona. And so that, to me, is really special. It's, it, it kind of encapsulates sort of our sustainable uh, um, philosophy of, of, of working locally and, and, and making, making these things happen and, and benefiting everybody around us. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Shiraz Matiar, a winemaker with Malivoire Wines. Uh, they've won uh, the uh, prestigious uh, National Wine Awards with the Winery of the Year. Uh, does winning awards help sales at all? 
I should think so. I mean, um, we don't we don't enter uh, a, a lot of competitions, uh, but we do enter a couple. So we, we're not really sending our wines internationally to kind of just get get the medal to say, hey, we've, we we got these medals. We we just do the local ones that I think really mean something to to our industry and really. Uh, uh, you can really get the, the the real penetration of 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 information and news to people. So people are like, yeah, these are the wines that are are really good. It's it, and it's really nice to to get that recognition. And and I think I think it will help sales. I remember helping my grandfather back in the day, so to speak, make wine. You know, he had all the grapes in the press, and it was a really fun process. What's the hardest part about making a good wine? <laughs> not not screwing it up, you know. <laughs> Everything can kind of go sideways once the grapes come inside. So you know, the hardest work is in the vineyard. And 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 big props to our our vineyard crew and vineyard manager Tristan Bondet, who 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 really does the hardest work because it's 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 365 days a year, uh, growing the grapes, tending those vines, ensuring that they're they're clean, they're healthy, and then we're going to get the quality of, 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 of fruit that translates to quality wine. So for me, uh, the hardest part is just sort of really picking the day that we need to pick and making sure that you're, because Mother Nature dictates everything. So, you know, you got to kind of be part uh, a weather specialist and, uh, and you got to pray a little and, and you're just juggling a lot of that to kind of get the, the perfect timing because it's all pretty critical on, on, on ensuring that you, you've you're picking the grapes when they're best, and then that makes the winemaking a lot easier. Shiraz, you've been a winemaker at Malivar since uh, 2005. How did you get into it? Well, I actually started uh, at Brock University uh, back in 1997. I, I, I knew about the, the, the wine industry uh, here in Niagara and, it, it, and, it, and you know, its growth and potential. And uh, clearly my name uh, drew me into the industry. And it just so happened that uh, Brock University was starting the Cool Climate Enology and Viticulture Institute in 1996 when I was uh, thinking about what I'm going to do with my life. And I'm like, you know what, I can really see myself um, working in vineyards and, 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 and making wine. And so I applied. I got in, luckily. And uh, I've, been, I've been making wine ever since. And, and as soon as I left uh, uh, Brock, um, Malivore was was my top choice because it was brand new uh, on the Beamsville bench, uh, Gravity Winery, really uh, a cool, different way of thinking, and and I was really drawn to it. So it's been it's been a great ride for over twenty years now. Well, considering that it's now the winery of the year, I'm sure they're uh, happy with the choice. And likewise, Shiraz, really appreciate the time. Cheers! Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having us. Pretty cool award. Other Niagara wineries, and there were a few that were ranked in the top 25, include Peller Estates, 30 Bench Winemakers, 13th Street Winery, Trius Winery, Ravine Vineyard, and Fielding Estate Winery, and Beamsville's Organized Crime also in the top 10 among the best-performing small wineries. So things are happening uh, with winery. Well, they have been for years, but uh, nice to know that a, a Beamsville winery has been named the Winery of the Year. That is a feather in the cap, no doubt about it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. 20 years from now, are we going to see flying cars? Are we going to see microchips implanted? I mean, some people believe they're already there. Are we going to see hyper-fast, zero-emission airplanes? Well, those are some of the bold predictions that are being made in a new report released by KPMG. And, uh, yeah, it includes a bunch of these things, including flying cars, robots and AI taking over the world, to a certain extent. 
So I thought it'd be fun to chat about uh, some of these wild and wacky and maybe truthful uh, crystal ball gazing predictions with Kermie Levy, tech analyst, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kermie. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. Um, So according to this survey, and this was a survey of 1,002 Canadians aged 18 and older from November 1st to the 5th on, you know, some of the different things that may or may not happen in the next two decades. I think one of the most striking predictions would be the flying car. Now, we have flying apparatus, but it's not quite the Jetsons. 45% of respondents think we will have flying cars in 20 years. Is this realistic? Oh, you know, I've been disappointed since I was a kid watching old Jetsons reruns, and so I'm not holding my breath on this one, much as I wish I could. Uh, because I think we all want a flying car. I think it would be just totally awesome for a while. My ringtone was the sound of George Jetson flying in his car. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where we may get the technology, but we will not have the regulatory framework around it. In other words, think of what a mess our current roads are today. Uh, imagine what that would be like if it were in 3D in the air. I don't even want to begin to think about it. I think we need to kind of, society needs to be ready for this technology before it becomes a reality. And as much as I wish I could have that, uh, I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. I think other developments like autonomy, for example, if I'm in a flying car, I'm not flying it, it's flying me. I think, and I think we'll also need better uh, sustainability. So in other words, it can't be run by internal combustion. It would have to be run on electricity or maybe some other technology that we haven't even become aware of. Uh, to get to the point where you and I can afford one of those and think of regular cars, how expensive they've become as a percentage of income. Um, it's, uh, you know, 20, 25 years from now. That's a little bit optimistic. And as much as I wish it were true, uh, again, I've, I've, I've learned not to hold my breath on this one. And I think uh, it's it's a little bit of a stretch to think that we're all going to be parking these in our driveways pretty anytime soon, or or hovering in our driveways. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you on that one. I, I couldn't, you know, I, I can't imagine being a traffic cop in that kind of day and age. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that works. Um, a yeah. next a next prediction is talking fridges, refrigerators, and I'm kind of surprised we don't have this already. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I did some digging, and if you look, LG and Samsung over the last little while have released so-called smart refrigerators that have uh, uh, touchscreens on their doors that you can interact with them, like basically a large iPad. So I thought about it. I thought, you know, that's kind of weird because we sort of already have that technology uh, now. The problem is is that it's not really affordable. Instead of a, a, a 1000 or a $1,500 fridge, it is a six or seven or or $10,000 fridge. So it's not like it's something that's going to show up in our homes anytime soon. There's a big difference between a technology being available and a technology being mainstream affordable. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking that within the next you know, 20, 25 years, that's a realistic one. We're, we're already starting to see so many of the, the dumb devices in our house become smart. So why not the fridge? And certainly it's not that expensive to put the screens and the sensors and the microphones and the cameras and all that stuff on a, on a fridge or on a kettle or on a stove to make it so that it would be a lot smarter than it is today. That one, I think that's almost a slam dunk. And I'm 
I think sooner rather than later. It's almost like when the CD player came out or the DVD player came out, they were like, you know, $5,000. Now you can get one for under $100, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, if at all, if you even want one. Um, but yeah, these these smart fridges, uh, I'm sure in a few years will come down in cost. Um, here's another one. 54% of respondents are worried that humanity will lose control to robots and AI, while this same survey also shows that workers will likely handle high-quality tasks and robots will perform mundane work, which is basically along the lines of what Elon Musk is proposing with his robot armada, if you will. Very much so. We've been hearing those worries about robotics for as long as there have been robotics, pretty much my entire life. And so I think this isn't a change from previous, and I think it's a good thing that Canadians are that concerned about the applications and the implications of technology going forward that they recognize that things like AI and robotics have a potential dark side. And as we develop them, we need to, as a society, figure that out, make sure that the right protections are built in, that we have good regulations to protect us from uh, extreme behaviors and from abuses. So this is a good thing. Uh, and, And I think uh, you know, again, governments have always been a bit on the slow side. The technology races ahead, and we don't have the right rules and frameworks in place. But I look at the survey, and I'm like, oh, Canadians get this, and they're worried about it. So it will become a question at election time. It will become a question when a candidate shows up at your door and asks for their vote. Uh, and I think that's a positive. Yes, the worries are there, and I think the potential for abuse is definitely there. But we're watching, and we're going to make sure that doesn't happen, and I'm encouraged by that. We have another minute with Carmi Levy, tech analyst, as we chat about a new report from KPMG that has 20 bold predictions for the next 20 years. Another one is a hyper-fast, zero-emission aircraft, if you will. And uh, one example has it traveling from Montreal to the U.K. in two hours. Very Concorde-like without the emissions, I guess. Yeah, we're already starting to see prototypes take to the skies. Uh, and, you know, different kinds of designs, reference designs, Airbus, Boeing uh, are developing them. Lots of startups also have their own prototypes that are uh, already starting to fly. So I think this one is a lock. Certainly technology needs to advance. We need better batteries, for example, or better propulsion technologies. But uh, it's moving very quickly. And certainly within our lifetime, I think we will see a shift in aviation and more more importantly that that technology won't just be applicable to the giant airplanes that we fly at an airport but increasingly we will see them on a smaller scale again will you and i be able to afford one Mm, probably not in 20 or 25 years but maybe a a small operator out of a small airport not not far from our home would be able to and it'll change the face of transportation this is what i'm watching very closely because there's already a lot of activity on it and we're already starting to see some change. Who knows, if we have flying cars, we may not need a hyper-fast uh, aircraft to travel anywhere. We can just fly there ourselves. <laughs> I'm down for either one. Whatever it takes, <laughs> I, I will be there with camera in hand because, uh, you know, uh, the future will be on social media one way or the other. No doubt about it. Carmi, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Rick. That is Carmi Levy, tech analyst, chatting about uh, the KPMG report on 20 bold predictions for the next 20 years. What do you think? Send me an email, rick at 900chml.com, on some of the things that you just heard and what you think will become a reality. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900chml and online at 900chml.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. 
and make sure you rate and review.